I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Andy J Podcast. Podcast. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Andy J Podcast. Thank you for choosing us. This is episode 110, and this one is tons of fun. Now, if you're a regular listener to the show, you will know that we've had a massive gamut of conversations with some incredible leading names, and lots of them have been deep and intense conversations, and lots of them have had big, powerful themes to them, and then you've just had some really lovely, light-hearted, fun chats. Well, this today is a sort of fusion of the two, which is kind of usually the case, isn't it? Because I have an extremely funny guest. I mean, a man who has been making us laugh in fits of laughter for very, very, very long time. But he's also incredibly deep. He's an incredibly thoughtful, creative, kind, clever man. And he's done so much. He's been in some of the biggest Hollywood movies going. He's been in some of the coolest television shows you've watched. And he has performed to some of the greatest and best people and places as a stand-up comedian you could imagine. I mean, literally living the dream across three different careers. As a presenter, as a comedian, and as an actor. And yet he remains incredibly humble and insightful and thoughtful and fascinating. I really, really like this guy. His name is Omid Jalili. You know him. The second you hear his name, you're probably having a smile on your face. And you've probably chosen this episode because you know he's great fun. And there are some really controversial comments coming up as well. So I encourage you to listen and give it your undivided attention. This one is funny and fascinating in equal measure. Now, I will say that towards the end of this conversation... Omid's phone line became uh, very static and and I think we've had to lose the last 10 or 15 minutes of our chat, which was a huge shame because it was just too difficult. And I kept asking him to repeat things and move rooms and we tried different lines and so on, but it was just against us. So we got about an hour of great conversation, but we did lose uh, the tail end of it down to reception and signal, etc. And in that time, typically, he said some really insightful, thoughtful, lovely things. But we also had a good chance to talk about his tour. And I feel it's my duty to make it clear to you that he is on tour for uh, so many dates throughout 2022 in so many different places. It's called the Good Time Tour. I mean, just check it out. Just Google Omid Jalili Tour. Uh, Incidentally, his spelling is DJ, but you can see that the D is silent in his surname. You can see that from the blurb on the pod anyway. But do check out the Good Time Tour. I can tell you, Omid is incredible live. He is just hilarious. Anyway, I think this one is great fun. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed having it. And I can tell you as well, just in and around it, the conversations I've had before and after, uh, Omid is a class act. He's one of the really good guys. So it gives me great pleasure to say over to Omid. The Andy J Podcast. Today, I am thrilled to say I am joined by someone I am going to describe as a legend, and I will explain why. 
As a movie star, he's been in some of the biggest movies around. Gladiator, The Mummy, Spy Game, Mamma Mia, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Bond Movie, The World Is Not Enough. As an actor on telly, he's been in incredible things like his dark materials. He has his own quiz show on ITV called Winning Combination. He's had his own chat show on the BBC, but if I tell you what it's called, you'll know who my guest is before I finish this intro. He's got a new TV chat show on BBC Persia. He's also an award-winning stand-up comedian who has made hundreds of thousands, nay millions of people laugh for a very long time. I am thrilled to welcome the one and only legend that is, Omid Jalili. How are you doing, Omid? Oh my God, Andy, that is probably the most comprehensive introduction I've ever had. Although there were a few things you missed out. <laughs> I would like to point out that I did do a film called The Infidel with uh, David Baddiel, which I was very pleased about and which I won awards for. And um, yeah, we we but we'll get into that later. But thank no, no, you. that's what it. A that's, that's the chat on I me. Mean. I just that was the one question I had for you. You've mentioned it. Great. Thanks. Thanks for your time. It's been... <laughs> no, I, I I can't say everything. I mean, I haven't mentioned you working with Whoopi Goldberg. I haven't. Met, I mean, there's an awful lot we haven't got into in an introduction on I mean, because there's so much to discuss. I know. I've had a very full life, and I'm very lucky. And you know, it's very important to be grateful. I think that's the thing. I would just. Uh, you know, I'm an immigrant child who really shouldn't even, didn't even want to go into show business. I just, I kind of was thrown in there by accident. And I, I actually wanted to be a professor of English literature. That was what I really wanted to do. But when um, my mentor said that he, he wanted to be an actor and I should just fulfill the dream that he had in show business. So, um, yeah, I think it's, I'm very grateful. I think that's the, that's the main thing I'd like to say. No, that's really, I mean, that's really positive. Ahmed, there's so much I want to discuss about your early years and, and what got you to where you got to. And of course, you've just alluded there to the fact that you didn't actually want to go into showbiz. And it, it sounds to me like kind of crossroads have come to you at several different moments and you've just kind of, you've opted for something that sounds like fun. Someone's kind of mentioned to you, hey, have you thought about this? And you've kind of, you've kind of taken it. So I'd love to sort of start with the early years, but, but can I just check something first, Ahmed? Because I'm always fascinated when I, when I kind of look into people I'm going to be chatting to about things that are on the internet about them that sometimes aren't true and sometimes are. And I just, okay, I just want to first check the meaning of your name. Does it mean the great hope? It, it means, yes, it, it does. Uh, Amid means hope and um, Jalili means of the great one. So it's the hope of the great one. Hey, that's it's a big, big shoes to fill. Big, yeah. It's a very huge expectation. It was actually it was a very popular name in the city. So I've met a lot of other Amids who were in their kind of late 40s, early 50s. So it, it was a very popular name. And I think it was because uh, at the time in Iran, hopefulness was a huge thing about the future. So it was a name that reflected the way parents were thinking about their lives, actually. So, yeah, around the mid-60s to late 60s, a lot of people called Omid. Well, I mean, it's, it's what you call a high-pressure name from the start, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> you know, what, what are your children's names? Oh, yeah, Icon and Legend. You know, that's... <laughs> well, it's better than when I was, I was in South Africa once and there was a, my translator was called Utensil. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was fantastic until I found out his brother was called a client. And I just thought it was such a, they were the two best names I'd ever heard. 
<laughs> that is amazing. I mean, Tokyo Sex Whale's got to be up there as well, hasn't he? <laughs> Brilliant. I never heard that one. It's, Hilarious. it's a pretty strong name. Um, now, I mean, let's start with the early days, because, of course, you talk about being an immigrant. But in actual fact, you were you were born and raised in London, in, in, a, in a fancy part of London, in actual fact. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very interesting thing that you're saying. I, I, I am, you know, as British as they come. And I remember thinking, my, my wife had married me thinking that she'd married this, you know, very exotic Iranian man. She's just, you're just, a, you're just an English bloke. You just love your football, you know, Ford Super Sunday, screaming and shouting and falling asleep in front of her. You're just an English bloke. I don't know what the hell I was doing marrying you. So <laughs> I, I am I am marrying this, and, and it, it it is also interesting to me that this show uh, that I have, you mentioned the BBC Persia show, which and I'm going to keep repeating it, it. It's it's the most watched comedy show on earth. We just did the one episode, and it got ludicrous numbers. I mean, they said somewhere between twelve million and fifty five million, which is the most ridiculous parameters I've ever heard. Gosh. Um well yeah, uh, but 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 there is an English version and and but but nobody's bought the English version yet because I think they worry that they think I'm not English enough. And it's so it's so funny to hear that when you see so many members of our own cabinet uh, are non domiciled that they that they're here. They they're 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 the rule makers that they don't even they don't even pay tax here. They just made me laugh. It's a very, I am it's a very, very salient yeah. point, actually. I like, I'm yeah, glad, it, glad that you've raised that. Well I had to raise that point because people were questioning my kind of English heritage, British heritage. So, yeah, I was born and raised uh, in, in Britain, although I didn't speak English until I was about three, until I went into nursery school because my I spoke the language and my parents spoke to me. Um, but, yeah, that, that kind of slightly posh Kensington uh, accent because the Iranian embassy is in Kensington and uh, my dad worked for the embassy there and um, we were just raised in Kensington. So you can, you, I've met other Iranians who just came to Britain. They went to, they went straight to Romford and they come from very middle class Iranian families, but they all talk like that. They've all just got this Cockney kind of Essex Romford accent. <laughs> so it, it, it is about, it's, it's where the, you know, just by chance where you were born and raised. But yeah, definitely London, London, Kensington. London Kensington. I mean, it sounds it sounds very luxurious. We're we're obviously quite used to Made in Chelsea on the telly now, and we see the sort of money that oozes from the screen, and you see the kids that have got all this privilege. That wasn't the upbringing that you experienced, was it? You weren't driving around in Ferraris and Bentleys and going back to penthouses with jacuzzis on the roof or anything. I wasn't at all. No, I was born and raised in a small flat. Although, you know, if you're interested in Kensington, they are the first borough in London to open up a Kentucky fried pheasant. Uh, that, that is, that's the way I would say that with, with ultimate shame and embarrassment with the tagline silver spoon licking good. So, so I, I'm not really, I'm not really from that set. Although when I went to school, I went to a comprehensive school called Holland Park school, but we went to parties when we were like 15 to 16. And we, we, and there were a lot of schools in the area that did have those posh people. There was a school called Latimerapa Godolphin. Um, there were, so we did actually, there was in, in some international school nearby. So we went to parties, you know, these rough kind of like Holland Park comprehensive school uh, kids. And we'd mix it with the posh kids as well. And I, I didn't realize that we had this kind of cool about us. That it was, oh, look, there's Omid. Jason, Omid, and Sasha from you know the rough comprehensive. Let them in; they're fun. Let them 
they're fun. They could rap and they're funny and they do break dancing. So we, we did have this kind of cool in the area, Holland Park school kids. So we were invited to a lot of those parties, but we never we were kind of kept at a safe distance. They kind of they let us come into the party, but we never really became friends with them. So that was that was something that I grew up with. Gosh, I mean, but what a fascinating thing to witness, though. You know, such a contrasting kind of different series of lives that you that you were seeing firsthand as a as a kind of young man. But yeah, honestly, I never forget in 1981. I remember seeing on Kensington High Street. Um, just I was in tra- literally sat in traffic. On my bicycle, I was on a bicycle, and I saw in traffic Prince Charles um, was also in traffic on the other side of the road in a convertible car, like an American convertible car. He was young; I think he was going off on a date, but he had two. It was open, literally convertible car, open, and he had these two very nervous um, security guards in the car with him, and people start honking their horns. And the people were singing songs like "There's only one Charlie Windsor, one <laughs> Charlie Windsor," and he started waving to the crowd because we were stuck in traffic. And, you know that kind of thing would never happen now, but in 1981, seeing especially on High Street Kensington, I don't know why it was. There was the Royal Garden Hotel, which is right by um, Kensington Palace, where you'd see the Brazil football team would come and stay there. Then they would. They were going train in Hyde Park. I saw Dustin Hoffman, Barbara Streisand. You saw these stars walking around because Kensington High Street was a place where people did their shopping. There was the Bieber shop where Freddie Mercury, Freddie Mercury's girlfriend was there in the late 70s. So uh, I I saw Freddie Mercury. I saw these people all walking around the street. So that whole probably showbiz was, was, it was not not a scary thing for me because these people, I mean, I saw how short, Dustin Hoffman was. I, I remember <laughs> thinking, I remember thinking, I'm 15. I'm taller than Dustin Hoffman. So, so it, 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 they didn't seem scary to me. So it was, it, it was, um, it, it wasn't a, a, a curse, but it was certainly a blessing to to be raised in an area where you just saw those A-list Hollywood stars walking around, and I think that must have really. You know, it took away the fear of going to show business for me, I think. Yes, it sounds like it. What were you like as a as a youngster? What were you like as a teenager? Were you cool? Could you rap? I mean, I know football was a big thing for you because you were a very gifted player. Yes. I, if you're part of the football team, you're always very respected by the older kids. And I ended up playing for my district. I played for West London. And, and I remember when Rapper's Delight came out, I remember, <laughs> I remember being 13 thinking, this is so cool. I'm going to learn the words. So I remember being in my second year, which would be year eight, and kind of impressing the year sevens, going a hip hop, a hippie, a hippie to the hip, hip hop, and you don't stop the rock. Things I can still remember now. Bang, bang, boogie to the hip, boom, to the hip, the boogie yeah, Exactly. Well, <laughs> anyone in their 50s. Yes. Now what you hear is not a test. I mean, <laughs> it's hilarious that we remember those words. But for me, I think the, the thing that um, helped me a lot was when I was 12, in my in what what would be year seven now, um, we did a class, and you know at Holland Park School there were eleven classes of thirty three kids, so already the classes were you know packed, and we used to do talent contests in our in our what we, we call tutor sets. And I did a sketch, and my teacher laughed so much. He goes, "You're going to do this, you're going to do this in front of the whole school tomorrow," and it was like Tuesday assembly in those days. Honestly, the um, the, the, the school auditorium is as big as the Palladium. I mean, it, it holds <laughs> 2,400 people. There's an upstairs bit and there's a downstairs bit. The upstairs is where all the upper six sat. 
So we did this sketch, and it, I remember it got such a massive laugh. The punchline, it was, it was very punchline-driven, and it involved the headmaster. And it was, I remember the stage shaking. And then the two coolest girls in the sixth form, i never forget them, they were called Pinky and Sam. They were long blonde hair, and they wore baseball jackets and pink berets. And I was 12, and they were 16. And they, um, they, they kind of took me under their wing. They goes, oh, you're funny. You're really funny. They go, he's this kid's cool. So I used to hang around with them at, at break time. And wow. people say, who is that kid? He's, he's with the... And I remember thinking, I might marry these girls. And, you know, coming <laughs> from my background... I could probably marry them both, and as long as I treat them, <laughs> as long as I treat them equally. Uh, so I remember thinking that, thinking they were, and, and then after a while, I think they just got bored of me the, the week after. But I, I always remembered that that making people laugh was a good thing, and I wasn't fully aware of why it was a good thing. But I got all this attention from older girls, and all the, the, the and even the school skinhead used to beat people up. He sat there, he put his arm around me, he goes, you're funny, you're, you're proper Chelsea, you're a Chelsea fan, in you? I said, yeah, he goes, yeah, you're right. And they kind of put out a word not to hurt me. Gosh. So while there was all this bullying going on, they, they, they never really bullied me. I did get beaten up once because the message didn't get through to these other kids who beat me up, unfortunately. And then I complained and then they left me alone. So it was, um, it, it, but I didn't really, I only realized around age 12, 13 that, that comedy is such a powerful tool. Wow. I mean, you know, this sounds just just kind of hearing about this. And, and you know, we've, we've sort of alluded to the fact that you sort of stumbled into your phenomenal career. But actually, if you think about the building blocks of your youth, which you may have done Omid, or you may have just kind of breezed through it and not really considered it. But, you know, the, the proximity to the super wealthy and the incredibly famous, the 20, the 2000 student stage in which you performed people finding you funny being part of the football team having a swagger to you being a bit different because you're in Chelsea but don't look like everyone else you know all of these yeah. things these are the sort of building blocks you know the, the 10,000 hours you need to become an expert at whatever all these things that we've heard you're having these naturally as a child that's what I'm saying you have to be grateful and and be aware because you know I only really was aware when I look back at things um when for example there was a show called um, not the nine o'clock news which is where we saw griffiths jones rowan yeah, atkinson I remember it well pamela stevenson and mel and mel smith the, the, that was the number one show which was actually geared and, and actually focused towards my generation because i remember seeing griffiths jones and he said and rowan atkinson he said um, well we were trying to it was it was the 14 to 18 market how old were you when i when you were watching us yeah i was 14 15 and that's what made me want to do the school play. So I did a school play. And then amazingly, the teacher, or the teacher, the writer of this play, we were doing a Scott Joplin review. And I played some journalist who had an American accent. And the first time I'd done an American accent. And, and the, 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 the teacher who was the director goes, oh, we've got Mel Smith from um, Not Nine O'Clock News coming in. And nobody knew him except for me. I said, is that Mel Smith from Not Nine O'Clock News? Is that the show that's on telly? They went, yeah. I said, why is he coming? He goes, oh, he knows the writer. And the writer said, come down and come and meet the kids afterwards. So I'll never forget. I was like maybe 15. And Mel Smith was probably 28. Gosh. And he came to the show and he was just stood there backstage. But we were all, you know, you know, getting ready to leave. He just stood there and nobody was saying anything. So I, I went up to him because no one really recognized him. And I literally hugged him and I said, you're my, you're my favorite you're so funny. And then he said to me, you're really funny too. You should think about it. 
I remember thinking, think about what? He goes, a career in comedy. You're, you're naturally very, very funny. And I, didn't, I never really thought of that. It was, it was only when the penny dropped about five or six years later, I thought, hey, hang on, that guy Mel Smith said I, I can do it. So I started doing it around 22, 23. And, um, and then the first agency that took me on was uh, Talkback, which was started by Mel Smith and Griffiths Jones. And, um, and I said to Mel Smith, I, you know, you, you encouraged me when I was 15. He goes, yeah. He goes, and you were very funny. So, it, so he, remembered. he remembered me. He remembered <laughs> I was this funny looking kid. He just said, you're very funny. He goes, I told you, I told you. And that's all. I didn't really have any other interactions where he just said, yeah, you're very funny. Very, very funny. We're what very more, happy do, what more do you need, yeah. though? You know, what more do yeah, you need? Yeah, I know. Oh, did so, I? So you know, that would, be, that would be heartbreaking, wouldn't it? Well, oh, <laughs> you remember me? Come on. Wow. Well, even if he didn't remember me, it was, it was lovely serendipity, but they, they were the first agency to take me on. So, so, that, so I am grateful. So, so that was, it, once you then have that encouragement, and once you are, it's, it's privileged. You know, you're, you're very privileged to be there. Look, if there are people listening to this, you know, in the Outer Hebrides, who who think that they're funny, they should they should still do it. But I, I'm saying that with all the encouragement I had and the, and the luck to be in the right place at the right time, you, you take this responsibility very uh, very seriously. So you, not only should you do it, but you you better be good because then all those gifts you're given are, are for completely for nothing. So that's why I think gratitude is important. Yes, no, you're you're, you're so right, and and you had you had these amazing opportunities, but like you say. It was also because you had a talent. You were different and you were distinctive. And I mean, accents alone, you can do them better than anyone I've ever heard. It, it's kind of intimidating how, how accurate you are with these things. But that's only because I was raised in central London. So when people say, you know, accents are politically incorrect to on stage now, I will always push back and say, no, if, if you do an accent badly and you've not represented that culture well, the least you can, if you're going to do an accent, do it well. And, and then for me, because I was born and raised in central London, I love the musicality of hearing people grapple with the English language in different ways. And, and for me, that's a celebration, not a reduction of that culture. But it is a reduction if you do it badly and if you do it from a, a, a space where you're making fun of. Yes, so if I you're think that there's a big it, difference. Yeah. yeah, if you're sneering at it. So, and I think we've had examples of that in British culture for quite a number of years, which is why there's been a pushback to it. But it's interesting, I've kind of got away with it, quote unquote. Uh, and I remember David Badil saying to me, how is it possible that you can do a Nigerian accent? And and if I do it, you know, I can probably get cancelled. And I said, David, I said, I said, you don't do it with panache. And he laughed <laughs> and he said, yeah, you're right. Yeah. He goes, I, I can't even do that accent. So yeah, you, you've got to do it accurately, I think. We are seeing, I mean, you've used that word cancelled. I mean, it, it, it is, it seems to be quite a dangerous time to be a comedian because people are, people are delving into back catalogues. You know, the, for a while, I know you're kind of very au fait with social media. Two or three years ago, there was a kind of a trend for people to be dug into their history of Twitter. You know, there were young footballers yes. that were getting panned for things that they'd written when they were 10 years old and didn't understand it and so on. And now the new culture seems to be diving into old jokes to seeing, you know, to see who we can be outraged at at the moment. Is, yeah. it, is it really tricky? Are you having to watch everything you say and do even more than, than right now? Or, or, or does Panache carry it through for you? I, I, I've been, you know, I've done some terrible jokes all my career. In fact, I've got to tell you, Andy, when I saw 
uh, Will Smith smack Chris Rock, when I saw that on the Monday morning and I didn't know the context, mm. I just saw him walk on stage, smack Chris Rock, and then Chris Rock saying, wow, that was the first thing I saw. And I just thought, I didn't know the history of the, the alopecia, Jada Pinkett Smith. Yeah. I thought that Will Smith slapped Chris Rock because of a really bad joke. And I thought, oh my God, if people are slapping Chris Rock for bad jokes, my act is going to be like a Bavarian dance festival. <laughs> it's going to be like people slapping their knees and things. And I thought, oh my God. But they, there is a thing where people do go back. In fact, look, Chris Rock slapped at the Oscars. Um, you have uh, the, the other comedian. There was a, a, another black comedian. I've just forgotten his name. But he was cancelled. He was supposed to host the Oscars. What's his name? Oh, I've just forgotten his name. Um, there's another comedian, you know, who was supposed to host the Oscars, but they found a joke from 2010 on Twitter, some some kind of homophobic reference, and then he was stopped from doing the Oscars. So I think people are using comedy, and, and they're using because comedy evolves. You know, there are things I might have done. You know, you could easily cancel me if you go back on my back catalogue, and people have tried to do that. But the thing is, if, you, if, if you're cancelling comedians now, th that is a problem for me because you're not, you're not looking at the real issues. Like there was a guy called Dapper Laughs many years ago. I remember Dapper, who, yeah. Who, Dapper Laughs, who had an ITV2 show, which was then cancelled because something emerged of him saying, she wants it, she knows what she wants. It was all this, there was, it, was, it was his act was playing a sexist guy who was putting it out there that this lad culture taken to the extreme, which I remember thinking, how has he even got a TV show? And then they canceled him and they put him on Newsnight and he was upset and he was like re regretful of all his stuff and they humiliated him. But nobody brought forward those ITV executives who thought it was the correct show to put on television in the first place. They just didn't, they just put him out. They canceled him. As you, you go and deal with it. But yeah. no one brought to book the people who thought that this was, everyone in comedy was thinking, how has he got a TV show? That's, this is so niche. This is so, it's fine if you want to do it in a comedy club. There's a group of people who like that. But it's it, the thing is, it's all about economics. It's about, you know, they thought that they could make money from this guy tapping into a certain aspect of our culture, which is undesirable. But then as soon as it switched, they ran away and they didn't say anything. So nobody, nobody actually questioned those first ITV executives who thought it was the correct thing to do. And I think that's the problem. That is the problem where uh, – that's one problem. But another problem is um, just because, you know, as Ricky Gervais has often said, just because you're offended doesn't mean you're right. And I think that is – we're being driven by a social media uh, push that people, people love offense because once you get angry and offended – that's what gets traction on Twitter. So that's the only reason why comedians, people are trying, I mean, they're not really being cancelled, but the people are trying to be cancelled them because an outrageous clip by Jimmy Carr out of context is going to get lots of likes and retweets and shares. So that, that's what, I think that's the problem, that we love outrage in this country. We love talking about things, love waking up and looking at our phones going, oh, what can I be outraged by now? Oh, did you hear this? Because it creates conversation. Because we are such an incredibly shallow culture that needs that. We, we, we can't wake up and listen to some meditative music and feel good and maybe say a prayer to the universe. No, it's got to be Twitter 
what's the latest on outrage culture? Yeah, what can I tweet about that will get, get me likes? Which is why I'm very proud that I have 310,000 Twitter followers and I'm the only person who regularly sends out a tweet and doesn't even get a like or a retweet. <laughs> I just put something out and actually loses followers. I'll put out stuff that is nice and doesn't make, doesn't offend anyone with one like. I'm the only person with over 300 times. I achieve one retweet from the same guy in Tasmania who retweets everything I do. So, so there you go. That's, that's the problem with us. The problem with our society is I have, I should have five, five million followers on Twitter, but I don't. That's, that's the should, problem. And they should all life. be retweeting and liking. That's, that's exactly. the thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, you, there's a bigger conversation about social media, isn't there? But but I, I suppose ultimately it sounds like you're aligned with me, which is that whilst it's a it's a space that we kind of have to be on professionally, it, it's very rarely a, a positive and pleasant space. It's a sewer. And I think at the end of the day, if, you, if you're going to try and cancel comedians who are a bit crazy, look, this is we love them. We love comedians because they do say what people are thinking but would never dare say. They are a bit nutty. They do put themselves out in the world where it's a bit of a risk. I've done some risky jokes. Oh, my God. When I did that joke at the Royal Variety performance in 2002, a year after 9-11, everybody was outraged and one person laughed. I said, suicide bomber schools, what's that all about? Someone saying, where's your bag? Oh, I left it on the bus. Well done, House Point or Gold Star. And you see, nobody laughed except for Prince Charles. Went, yeah, yeah, that's funny. And then everyone saw him laugh and everyone else laughed. Otherwise, that w- I would have been cancelled if it wasn't for Prince Charles laughing at that. And afterwards, he said, of course, you're making fun of suicide bombers. You're not, you're not condoning it. I said, yeah, but I suppose if you know, if, if you know someone who's died in a suicide attack. And he said, he goes, no, he goes, we must make fun of the bad forces and you're doing that and I totally support you. So I think that that's what happens. The generality of people will think that's a sick, disgraceful joke. But actually, when you break it down, if we can't make fun of the evildoers in this world, that is where society is really reduced. And I think that's kind of what's happening. Comedians who have a great voice are being silenced a little bit because they worry about being cancelled. Yes. And I think that's a problem. Yes, yes, that is that is the challenge, isn't it? It's and when we when we see people pulling their comedy punches, as it were, rather than yeah, yeah. being their funniest version of themselves. It's, and I'll never do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'll never do that. Well, you've had the royal seal of approval there, Ahmed. I mean, maybe that's what you need to add to your to your Twitter handle. You know, maybe that's why you're not getting the likes and retweets because well, you you know you haven't kind of bigged that up enough. I haven't, but I am bigging up the fact that I am the most watched comic on planet Earth right now with my show on BBC Persian. People said, what are you talking about? Why are you saying this? I said, no, I am the most watched comedian on planet Earth. I I keep saying it because it's fundamentally true. (laughs) I did one episode of one show and and people say, you're out of your mind. I said, I am, listen to me, I have the most watched show on planet Earth. And I will keep saying that because it upsets white people. And it upsets (laughs) English comics. But I will keep saying it because it is the truth and because no one is paying attention. But, but I, I actually said, to me, hello, I'm Ahmed Lili. What do you do? Because I am the most watched comic on earth. I actually put it in my conversation. Yeah. I'm going to put it on my Twitter handle. Actually, that's just remind me, I'm going to change my Twitter handle. I'm going to do that. But I think that that is, that is something where, you know, it's not even about a royal seal of approval. I think that we often, as, as British culture, if something is good, 
We are trained to play it down. Yes. If something is amazing about you, is I don't tell people it'll upset people because people are fundamentally, you know, they're angry and they're jealous. And why would you want to fuel that? No, I am the most watched comic on earth. Come on. Deal with it. Get it on a T-shirt, <laughs> Omid. Get it on a T-shirt and just strut around with it. You're listening to the Andy J podcast, and we really appreciate having you here with us. If you're enjoying the show, why not leave us a lovely review and perhaps five stars and subscribe wherever you're listening, as it really does help. Podcast. Do you remember when there was that whole um, Team Brad and Team Jennifer? Well, in actual fact, this 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 may come back to your fault. Actually, long term, we'll we'll talk about that in a moment. But there oh, were wow. there were a load of people that were like celebrities were walking around with hashtag Team Brad or hashtag Team Jennifer. Similarly, you know, our good friend Mr. Harrison Ford, he has walked around with T-shirts that say "I'm Han Solo" and "I'm Deckard" and so on. So you could do that. You could have a T-shirt that says "The most I'm the most watched comic on the planet," and then just on the you back, can... deal with it. You know, or That's some, a great idea. something like that. Why don't you do it? I'm going to do that right now. I, 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 as soon as we get off this phone, I'm going to change my Twitter handle. In fact, when pe- when people listen to this, just just check my Twitter handle at Omid Nine, and you will see that in my bio. There you go. Yeah. Good. But the T-shirt is it, or, a, or a mug where you just, you know, you could take it to every gig and you just hold it up and it's got that on it. I don't know. You should. Brilliant idea. Yeah, brilliant idea. But it's about celebrating success. And, you know, I was, speak, I was speaking to Jimmy Mulville of this. Jimmy Mulville is the guy's head of Hattrick. Um, he does, you know, have I got news for you? He said, we never celebrate success. And he said, we never celebrate the fact that, you know, we don't make stars of people. And, you know, we, we, and we don't like it, which is why a lot of people were a little bit uncomfortable with Ricky Gervais's success because he's really owned it. He's owned it and he's playing a, 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 a game with the British culture that he has so many followers and he's so successful, but he, he, he plays around with that. He and loves I, it. I just think he absolutely loves he it. He loves it. And good luck to him because, you know, if you, anyone has seen The Office, it's brilliant. If you've ever seen Afterlife, it's a brilliant show. He's He's a... He is. A, if you've seen him, if you're roasting, roasting A-listers at the Golden Globes, it is brilliant. There is no no question about it. But he's doing it in a slightly tongue-in-cheek way. He's doing it in the most brilliant British way, as well, which is why he's successful and because he understands that people don't like success. But in in general, we don't celebrate that enough. I think that's it's a real problem in in British society. I think one of his lines on it, and I, I, I'm I'm going to tread lightly trying to paraphrase Ricky Gervais mid-show. Mid so I'll get this wrong, but it was the gist of this. I went to see him at the Apollo, Hammersmith Apollo, and he was talking about mm-hmm. how, how rich he is. You know, packed house, full, full stadium. You may have been there yourself. Uh, you know, thousands of yeah. people. And he was, he was talking about money and how much money he's got. And, and he sort of said, yeah, I know people don't like it, but here's an example for you. I'm so rich, I could burn this whole place down and rebuild it and not even notice the difference in my bank account. <laughs> and it was it was something like that. There was a line like that, and it absolutely took the roof off. People were just laughing and clapping, and it just own it, have some pride, go for it. Your success, yeah, and that's great, and that's great that he does that because I remember Rich Hall doing a a, a gag about Bill Gates having so much money that if he put all his money into cash and put them in ten dollar notes and put them under his bed, he'd be so high up in the sky that when he got out of bed, it would take him 18 minutes to hit the ground. <laughs> and then he's, but, but he's also making so much interest on that money and the money would just keep piling up that he would actually, it, 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 the money he's making is faster than gravity. So if he got out of bed, he would never actually hit the ground. <laughs> so 
that's a brilliant. To actually discuss how much money people have is a, is, is a great comedy tradition. So I think Ricky Gervais has done very well with that one. That's very fun. That is, it's, well, it, yeah, it certainly, it certainly made me laugh. I mean, according to, just while we're talking about money, Omid, uh, according to uh, the internet, your net worth is a cool £6.7 million. Well, I'd like to see some of that money because that's not true. <laughs> that is not true. I remember seeing that. I remember seeing it when it was 3.5 minutes when I'd literally been in a thousand seat venue and 200 people showed up on my tour. So I don't know where they're getting these figures. Some gigs I've done, I've actually lost money because of COVID. So, and people say, why are you doing so many dates? I said, we, I've done no work over the you know pandemic and I have nothing. I have all this nonsense about on the on the. <laughs> I'm going the other way. I actually don't have any of that kind of money. I'm, so, I'm but so you're, sorry. But to no, hang on, people. hang on. You're the most watched comedian in the world. You must have all the money. You must have all of it. Yes, I know. No, not at all. I've been the most watched comedian on earth with a show that um, they they paid three thousand pounds for uh, on BBC Persian. So that, it's something that we have to we had to fund ourselves in the <laughs> hope in the hope that we would get a series which still hasn't happened, despite the fact that I am the most watched comedian on earth. I said, now you have to go away and find the money and, and give me my money back yes. for making that show for you. So yeah, illusion is a huge problem as well. People think people are very rich and very well off. I've had people come up to me, yeah, but you're rich, aren't you? And I said, I'm oh, not really not. I'm really, I said, where do I live? Check where I live. I live in Suffolk, Ipswich. I have had to move out of London for financial purposes, because I have no money. That's the thing. I mean, I've got some, and I'm making a little bit, but I am, I am th- th- this illusion. It's even, there's a big thing we have in this culture is we are obsessed with other people's money. We are. And I'm, here I am so on right. talk radio. Yeah. Oh, here I am on talk radio telling people, no, 6.5 million, where is 6.7, 6.7 million. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. I've, I'm sure I've created that much money, but I don't, I don't have it in my bank account. That's your. That's your net worth from 2021, according to Entertainment Daily. There you go. So that's that's a direct quote for you. He is worth a cool 6.7 wow. million pounds, not that's dollars. That's very but good. Actually, pounds. I mean, but this is fascinating, Omid, because you have from the movies you've been in, the TV shows, and the various different comedy ventures and avenues that you have played in and explored, and, and the people you have met you have rubbed shoulders with and worked with some of the elite level hollywood a-list super wealthy haven't you i mean russell crowe brad pitt you 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 are buddied up with some of the the best and the richest actually when we're talking about the finance of it yes but what's that got to do with my bank account well this well this is the point you have you have enabled their performances you have shared the screen with them is it is it maybe a little unfair that they've got all the money and you don't have the (laughs) 6.7 yeah if you bring it like that yes it is is, (laughs) it's very unfair it's very unfair where um you know at the end of the day people think you've got small roles in big movies but i remember robert redford telling me don't play it down you know i'd much rather have a small part in gladiator than a lead part in 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 nonsense nonsense films i've done over the years, because he said to me, you know, I've wasted about two years of my life, about seven films I've done, which never never saw the light of day, or I wish they hadn't even come out because it was the lead role, but it wasn't a good movie. There are so many movies being made. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that just because you've made a movie, it's a great movie. Yeah. He said, even me, I've done some terrible, he said, I've done some terrible movies. I wish he said, I literally, and you can tell people this, 
I would have given my right arm to be in Gladiator. And you're very lucky that you had three minutes, of, three or four minutes of screen time on that, that amazing movie, which will be watched for, until the dawn of time. It's till the end of time, he said. Yeah. So, it, so you should be very uh, grateful and happy to have been in those, in those films. But, you know, it's a small part. And, and you, you, you can play a role also in atmospheres. I think that's the thing. I remember there was a slight problem on Gladiator and something happened. I made people laugh and then another thing happened and there was more laughter afterwards. And then I met Ridley Scott about 10 years later. He says, he said, you know what? The atmosphere was very tense up until you came on set and then those funny things happened and it changed everything. And I said, so what do you mean it changed everything? He said, oh, we, we just carried on. It was a better atmosphere and we reshot some stuff that didn't work before. And, and I said, so hang on. So you've won the Oscar because I changed the atmosphere. And he, he took a puff of his cigar. He goes, yeah, you could say that. <laughs> you, see, so you see? Well, this is the thing. Nice. Would, right, I've given you a T-shirt idea and a mug idea. So now hearing that, here is a new idea for you. You need to start taking the Alec Guinness route of payment. You know what he did with Star Wars? He was like, don't don't give me a salary. I'll take a you know a percentage or 5% or whatever it was of, of the profits. And yes, I need to do that now. If yeah, you'd exactly. done that with Gladiator, with The Mummy, with Spygram, but goodness me, with The Mummy. Here's why you should have got it with The Mummy, Ahmed, because most of the lines that you have in it are you busking? They haven't written them for you. That's you making it up on the spot. There are a couple of lines that were, were written for me, which I refuse to say. And then, they, then the director, the director rang me up. He goes, "Just play around with it, you know. Um, you know, just just have a thick skin. If I tell you that's rubbish, don't be upset. Don't go all act. Don't go. Don't go all actory on me and just be, you know, offended." So I kept chucking stuff out, and he kept saying, "No, no." And I said, <laughs> "Well, what if I say this? What if I say when the women are hitting me?" I come out of a shop and all these women are hitting me and they're offended by me. What if I say most women thank me for doing that? He goes, I said, no, <laughs> no, you can't do that. So I was chucking stuff out, but a few things sticked and, 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 it, and, and a role was developed and it was, it was already a one dimensional role on the screen. I kind of made it into a two dimension. I mean, a three dimensional Arab character was out of the question in Hollywood, and even in the nineties. So, um, so I was very pleased that they allowed me to do this. But then again, you have to say that film saved Universal Studios. That that film grossed six hundred and sixty million dollars when they'd had a whole load of flops. And a producer quietly told me, "The Mummy." Now that they have Mummy rides at the Universal Studios, because they acknowledge that that film saved the studio. Because they they were going under financially. You you can take five hits, but there are five to six hits. But when they hit their when they hit their eleventh and twelfth kind of movie flops, the, the the studio bosses were getting very nervous. So 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 the mummy came out and pretty much saved the studio and saved Universal Studios where you go there the, the tourist attraction. But you know I wasn't on one of those contracts. I wasn't a buyout. So. Um, I don't see any of that money. I don't see any residual money at all. So that's, and also that's the thing when you don't live in America, people think, how do you get these breaks? Well, they don't pay the British actors or the Australian actors that much. I'm now part of the SAG AFTRA, um, you know, thing where I can get a couple of residuals, but, but at the beginning, you just do what you're told and you just, you're in a film and you're, you're, you're happy. You don't think financially, you don't think about starting a corporation or, doing things to protect your money. Don't think like that. That's probably why, you know, they put 6.7 million because someone thinks that, well, the mummy's made six point, you know, 660 million. He must've been getting residual. So there's at least a million there. Yeah. But no, 
doesn't, doesn't work out like that. We're still talking about money, Andy. I, I love I love that you're you're dwelling on the six point seven million. I would be too if people said it was my net worth and I didn't have it. I'd be, I'd be really miffed. I'd be like, what? Because there's perception of of extreme wealth, isn't it? It's like, no, no, that's not that's not how it works. Well, if but, you go on the internet, Adam Adam Woodyat, Adam Woodyat, who I think plays, has got a role. He was the he's, he's he's EastEnders the, guy, wasn't he? He was. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's Adam Woody. Uh, he, he was um, what's what's his character name? What's the Dallas guy? It's a bad example when you can't think of people's names. <laughs> I can't think of anyone's names. What's and even the other comic who didn't do the Oscars? What's the matter with <laughs> me? Okay, all right. Anyway, let's carry on. I was going to say Adam Woody at he's worth 12 million or something. So the whole thing is ridiculous because he owns Albert Square, doesn't he? That's the <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He's been charging rent all this time, and that's that's fine. Yeah, I don't know his name either, but I don't watch EastEnders, I'm afraid. I mean, look, just just another one on movies, and I know we'll we'll get onto things that you're writing and you want to produce and create for yourself. But if I if I could, if I was a Hollywood producer now, and I was I was making a new version of something, it could be a Guardians of the Galaxy or a Star Wars or a Blade Runner. I mean, these are just sci-fi movies for some reason. It could be, I don't know, The Hangover or whatever. And I was offering you a prominent role. What movie would you love to take a big, big role in? And and like, even if it's a redo of Indiana Jones or something, what would you, what would you it love? It would be a movie called The Most Watched Comic on Earth <laughs> with me in the lead. That's the, only, that's the only film I can see, Andy. I'm so sorry. That's all I can see. You can't, can't get beyond it. You're stuck. <laughs> actually, that, do you know what they should do, actually? I think they were working on a second Gladiator movie. There was a, a, grad, a Gladiator prequel they were working on, but I think it's... Um, if they, they started working on it, and then I don't know where it is now, um, but, but there, there, there is talk of a second Gladiator movie. So wow. that's, that, that's where I put my money, because that movie grossed $1.2 billion. It tw- twice the, the number of... To twice the number as, as the mummy. So if if I was a producer, I would definitely put my mind into Gladiator Two. Oh, but is it true? I hope that answers your question. Yes, it yeah, does. It does. While we're talking about Gladiator, is it true? And, I, and I'm sorry if I've got this slightly wrong, but the, there was a slight mix-up on the set, and and for a while, Russell Crowe thought you fancied him. Is is that right? Yeah, that's a that's a huge <laughs> long story. Yes, that was that was the misunderstanding. Yes, he thought I was he thought I was um, in love with him. Yeah, which is. <laughs> And which is why he was very nice. He left me, you know, lots of pictures of himself in LA Confidential <laughs> in my trailer. Because he but thought you had a crush on him? He thought, he thought I was a huge fan and thought <laughs> I was slightly in love with him, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mentioned it earlier, so our listeners are going to be like, come on, what? Tell us about the, the Brad Pitt thing. You did give Brad some love advice shortly before yeah, I mean, he, he split up with Jennifer is, This is the problem. This is the problem when you talk to regional, you know, regional radio or regional newspaper. They say, oh, go, go on, give us some gossip. And it was some young girl who said, look, can you give me a scoop or something? I'm young. And, and, and it's because the interview's gone well. It's gone very well. I said, but I, I, said, I don't kiss and tell. What, what are you talking about? She goes, just give me something. I said, look, look, if you want, I, I was in a car with Brad Pitt. We were filming and with him the whole day, half the day. And then he asked me some marital advice. And I said, marriages go in stage one, stage two, stage three. Stage two is where it's difficult. Things go difficult you know, for a while. But if you fight through it, you get into stage three. But stage two can last a long time. It's a difficult time where you finally get to know each other. and you Don't particularly like each other anymore. 
but you've got to fight through it and remember what was in stage one when it was blind love and it was wonderful. And then he took a phone call while I was with him and he was walking outside. I could see him, he's on the phone. And he, was, he looked ashen-faced and there was a couple of shouts. And he came back and I said, who was that? He goes, it was Jennifer. I said, how, how is everything? He goes, I think we've gone into stage two. Mm. And we laughed. We laughed. And, and it was like a funny moment. But because then he goes, oh, it's, it's all fine. And then I, I, I didn't think anything of it. And then um, I, I think it was a little while, but I think a week later or two weeks later, my agents in America said, what the hell have you done? Look at TMZ website. Look at TMZ. I've got Brad Pitt's agent on the phone. Everyone's angry with you. What the hell are you doing? And I saw there was on TMZ, it said English comedian uh, admits to breaking up uh, Brad and Jennifer. And there was a photograph that was split in two of Brad and Jennifer with me in the middle with the microphone looking very jowly. <laughs> and it was just a miss. That's how they, she, she, she had um, got the story and said, Omid Lily breaks up Brad and Jennifer. I mean, that's what the press do sometimes. And I, and I was, and that was about, God, when was that? That was about 14 years ago. So I, I, I laugh about it now. But at the time, I remember thinking, <laughs> this is bad. Yeah. And I was friends with Brad Pitt. And he, and he said, how could you do this? You know, so it, it was very serious at the time, but it's something that you, know, you laugh about now. It was just, uh, that, that's why people get guarded. Because what happens is that journalist would have made money out of that. She would have made money, what, for 500 quid or something? Yeah. And some, a few hundred quid. And that is, again, a huge problem with our media right now, that you can say something, sensationalize something. So somebody, a photograph, will make a photographer like 1,500 quid and it goes global. And he'll probably make a little bit more on top of that. But for what? To destroy someone's life? I mean, that's why you have paparazzi there who don't care. They want to destroy people's lives. They want to find something sensational. So they make money. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. So. It's up to people to be a little bit more guarded in what they say and to be a bit more respectful of people's private lives. I mean, yes. my goodness. I mean, it's when you when you think about, you know, even when 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 Harry and Will say the press killed my mother, there is no question of that. There is no question that all those faraway paparazzi shots of her with different men and everything. That is why she was hounded. Because they don't care about her. They just care about the few hundred quid they're going to make. Yeah. And that, that, is, that is a problem. That is a real problem because we've forgotten. We've become so blunted morally that we don't care about people's private lives. And I think that's something that you know, we, we have to start respecting a bit more. No, I'm, saying, I'm, I'm saying something very, very obvious, but it does disturb me that even I, I can make light of it now, but at the time there was a lot of stress about something I'd said just yes. because... This girl was on the phone and wouldn't, wouldn't, let, wouldn't let go, kind of thing. Well, so, but interestingly, you, know, you, you, but interestingly, it also speaks to your kindness as well, though, because you said, you know, when you started that story, you said, you know, she was young and she'd had a good interview with you and she, she just sort of asked you for some kind of tidbit to, to, to kind of give her that lift. And you kindly yes. came up with something. You could have just said, no, you've, we've had a good interview. That'll do. You know, we've had a nice chat. You know, I've learned to do that now. You, you learn boundaries as you, as you get older. That's the thing you don't, <laughs> you know, until you get to your forties. You learn with, you know, with time that you can be clear with your boundaries with people. Time, I remember thinking, yeah, I'll give her a leg up. Sometimes it's good to help people, you know, but sometimes part of you thinks, well, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get. But actually, 
sometimes it's cheeky ones you can be a bit careful of. So that's, that's another important life lesson. Well, also, you gave her the scoop because she was young. And, and there's no scoops coming my way. I'm far too old for it. I'm, I'm sort of mindful of that. Right. Yeah, you know, I'm, yeah. I, I won't even ask for one, Ahmed. I'm just, you know, I'm just aware that I'm, I'm, I'm too, too long in the tooth, and that's, that's how it's going to stand. This interview is a scoop. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ahmed, I've got some more sort of random things that I've picked up about you because it's you're one of these fascinating people that has been in our lives in various forms, as we've said, movies, television, stand up, and so on, with your own shows, etc. For such a long time, you've been in the public's awareness for, for myriad reasons for a long, long time. And yet the sort of stories of your of your past are, are few and far between. You know, you, you haven't you haven't put lots and lots of personal stuff out, which I'm assuming is, is a deliberate choice on your behalf. Uh, but but nonetheless, there are things you can glean when you kind of dig deep enough. And, and one of the things that I find fascinating was when you were a student now as, as a, at university. Now, there are two bits to this, which I'd love you to share if you're happy with. The first one is the story of your not quite getting expelled from school, but not necessarily being invited to return and still, however, managing to get your A-levels, despite the fact that the, your A-levels that you went to uni with weren't actually the grades that you got. Excuse me if this no. is sounding a bit confused, but I'm sure you'll be able to unpack it for me. And then moving to an incredibly remote part of Ireland, living alone, and also on one occasion being shot at. Could, is any wow. of this true? And can you can you please expand if it is? You've done very deep research on me. Um, thought I was going to go to Los Angeles to live with my grandfather too after O-levels. Failed a few of them. So I couldn't. But uh, when I went back to my old school, the headmaster said, no, we can't have you here because you, you, you one too many times you burst staff room as playing the piano naked and <laughs> first round on a moped and so we can't have you here we do you are officially expelled so then i had to go and do a levels at colleges like classes so my whole a level was all over the place and so i didn't quite get grades and i felt i was unlucky so i lied my way into the um, university of ulster and I, day i always thought it was a miracle that they let me in, um, but I think they knew when I look back at it now with an older head. Nobody wanted the University of Ulrain, which is the northernmost of Northern Ireland. There you go. Are you happy now? Is that a scoop? Yeah. Are you happy now, Andy? No, it's not. It can't be a scoop because I already found it out. I mean, I just wanted to check if it was real or not. But but yeah, I am, no, it's real. I am happy because I'm I'm having a lovely time chatting to you. I mean, I, I'm genuinely, you're, you're absolutely fascinating, man. What what a life you have led, and and and. What joys await, I think. I mean, now seems like a good time at the end of our chat to, to plug the fact that you're on tour, the Good Time Tour. I imagine lots and lots of our listeners have already seen you because you are a prolific tourer. I mean, you don't just go out for three or four days, do you? You, you just go, right, let's, let's do everywhere all the time. I because I refuse to do too much TV. I don't do too much. I'm, I'm not one of those comics who's on every show. and No point. Why would you, why would you do a panel show if you have you know, a really good stand-up comedy show. People come and see. The thing is, I probably, I'm, I'm not in people's pop consciousness that much as a stand-up comedian anymore. So I'm just trying to reestablish. I'm to get people to know me. I've realized, actually, Andy, people like a comic more if they know them, which is why I'm happy to do this interview. And I've always been a bit reticent about sharing too much about my life because and I never saw why 
that was relevant. But now I do when, when people, when they know you and they trust you. Uh, and I think comedy now is a lot about trust. Uh, you, you know, we do, Connolly has an amazing career, but years and years, we saw him on TV, we knew him, he made us laugh. You get to know them. And I think I've never really had people know me. And I'm, I'm confusing. I'm a British Iranian. I'm, a, I'm an immigrant. I'm, and I speak in a posh voice. People have often said, I don't you because I worry that I'm offended that you're too, you talk about suicide bombing and you're, you're bang on about being an Iranian. And people don't realize it's taken me a long time to establish that I am a comedian in my own right. I have a point. So I can talk about other things than, than my heritage. Omid, I've loved that chat. Thank you so much for your company. I've really, really enjoyed it. Cheers, Andy. That was great. Listen, man, that was great. Have a great day. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.